so for me, I, I remember kind of you know going through this existential crisis that began actually when I was 12, when I was concerned that the world was meaningless, that it had no purpose. And for me, when that that all began actually when I was 12 because I started thinking about the fact that I'd die one day, which starts to get you to think about you know the bigger questions of life and. And the you know amusingly as it is, uh, it was my weightlifting coach that I would go to and ask questions about life's purpose, uh, because he was such a driven guy, you know, mm. and he could bench 400 pounds. So I figured, man, if anybody's got life figured out, it's got to be my weightlifting coach. So I'd ask him, you know, you know why, you know where where do you find you know the purpose, you know, in, in all of this, because in some ways it's kind of meaningless, you know, when you're just lifting weight every day and you're just pushing it up and down. And he really never had an answer for me. He just said, you know, go, go lift some more weight, Steiger. And, and I, I found that very dissatisfying and, and wanted to know, you know, if life did have purpose to it. And if it did, I wanted to know what it was. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's show, I have a very special guest, but also a special friend, Andy Steiger, soon to be Dr. Andy Steiger. And depending on when you're listening to this show, it probably he is already a doctor. Now, Andy is really gifted on helping people understand meaning in life and answering the five big questions, which I actually have included in the Quest for Purpose book about why are we here? Andy also does a lot of work with youth and he's been using the personal style indicator with those individuals for over five years, maybe longer than that, can't even remember. And just the importance of understanding self, why are we here, the impact in interesting in our conversation, one of the things that's come out is people have never been more lonely, people have never been more depressed in spite of all the things going on and all the social media and including things like this podcast. But what we really dialogue and can have a conversation about is that relationships matter. And the personal style indicator is one of the anchor tools to help build relationships. And then I also reference, we reference this research from Harvard that one of the number one factors to building or contributing, pardon me, to longevity is loving relationships. So as always, thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. If you're interested in how the personal style indicator could transform your life, we do have a brand new e-course on Why Aren't You More Like Me, which is the book that we're referencing here. And then as well as the show notes talk about where you can get Andy's book. He has an award-winning short film now really called The Human Project. But as as always, thanks for listening. If you like what we're doing, please share, pass it on, let other people know about what we're doing. Leave a positive comment in in a review in whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. Here's our guest today, Andy, soon to be Dr. Steiger. Well, today's special for me, and it's also going to be special for you because this is one of my friends that are on the show, and we've known each other for quite a while now. He's been kind enough to endorse my latest book, The Quest for Purpose. He's written a book. He also has a new one that's coming out. He's been on our patio for a barbecue. And so that's kind of nice to be able to have your friend, your colleague, and somebody who is transformational, really talking about really the spiritual nature of who we are. And I know a lot of shows don't want to talk about that, but I think it's an important component because if we think about life and what's going out there in the world today, it is an anchor point for us. So welcome, Andy Steiger, to the show. Andy, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be with you. Thank you, Ken. And I actually really want to call you Dr. Andy Steiger. <laughs> almost. Though, almost. But, you know, because this show is going to be archived, and they're listening to this show in 2075, you are a doctor by then, right? <laughs> Lord willing, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, you're almost there. And of course, we'll get into yeah. your education and that kind of stuff. But uh, and Andy, some of the things I know that you're in Canada now, and we have listeners all around the world, but you 
weren't you um, um, born in the U.S.? Yeah, I was born in uh, Redding, California, and then my uh, my mom moved to Portland, Oregon. So I grew up in uh, Portland. I heard that there was this uh, you know this country above the U.S. called Canada. Um, I was one of those ignorant uh, Americans. There's plenty of us in which I thought uh, Canada was a part of the U.S. that no one talked about. And when I heard that they Man, had a you're, cheap... you're de- you were deeply developed at that time. <laughs> it was pretty bad, Ken. But then when I heard that uh, the Canadians had their own dollar and that the American dollar was worth more, it was some uh, incentive to go to university in Canada. So I, I moved up there and went to... Went to university. In, well, what in were Bristol. your growing up years? Now, you mentioned your mom. You didn't mention your dad in that situation. W- where was he in the picture? Yeah, when my when I was about five, my four between four and five, my parents separated, and so I uh, my mom moved us four kids and our dog Fluffy, and moved us up to Portland. We we lived uh, with my aunt for about a year. In a in just one bedroom in her house, all five of us and the dog, yeah. And I, I remember you know sleeping sleeping on one bed, the whole family. Those were some uh, challenging years, no doubt. So what do you think? You know, and of course, a lot of us have these stories, and I think part of uh, SOS is people's story and their journey and what they've been through to get to where they're at. What was what was really the characteristics? that was able to kind of equip your mom to keep going in spite of those conditions? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question uh, because anybody who's gone through a circumstance like that, uh, the, you know, your, your ego um, takes a real, a real beating um, in, in those situations where, you know, depending upon how, you know, the separation took place and, and all that. But, it, you know, a lot of your identity is, is found, is, you know, for those who are married understand this, is found in your spouse. And so when you're, when you're separated, there's a sense of, you know, kind of loss of trying to figure out who mm-hmm. you are. And, and so for my mom, uh, I, I kind of watched her on that journey. And the thing that was absolutely critical for my mom was her relationship with God. She, uh, this was, this was something that she was, uh, developing. And so I, I kind of, I watched that unfold, which was, which was really interesting to see as a kid. And so that became an anchor point for her. And then when you think about sort of traditional characteristics and qualities, what would, what do you think was really underpinning or driving besides her faith that, that equipped her or enabled her to actually get through this kind of difficult time? Well, it's interesting because we, we kind of see the same thing, um, you know, over and over again in different, different areas is, uh, and that I, I talk quite a bit about, and that's ultimately this idea of community, uh, community with God, community with people. And so for her, um, and this is something that she, you know, stories that she would share with me all the time was, was just how, pivotal uh, and important it was for her to have uh, a foundation uh, in God, but then also that that involved people. Now, Christianity, we'd call this the church, but there were, there were many times, you know, that um, people from the church left groceries at, at her door uh, and helped in, in a variety of ways. And that had, a, had an incredible impact uh, on my mom. Um, so, you know, just seeing healthy and good community and people caring for one another and really inspired her to do the same thing. I, I remember, you know, this, again, this is one of those moments from your, from your life that you kind of never forget. And that was uh, my mom, when she started going to church, she heard one day that there was a need at the nursing home for people to visit with the elderly. And so, you know, my mom, by being impacted so deeply by, you know, community in her own life, as she was going through her own challenges, you know, started going to the, this nursing home, and uh, my sister and I uh, went with my mom each week for years, uh, visiting the same lady. Her name was Aloisa, and uh, and it was interesting, you know, watching uh, how significant community was in her life, and even in the lives of those people uh, that my sister and I would go, you know, run in the halls of this uh, nursing home and visiting. I, I remember the guy beside her, his name was Lucky. 
And he loved every week, you know, when we'd come and play cards with him. We would bring Aloisa a milkshake, you know. She loved she loved uh, chocolate milkshakes. And how old, how, Andy, how old were you at that time? Uh, I would have been about eight. Wow. So the, this whole idea of giving back was instilled early. Very early. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you don't remember a lot of when you're eight years old, but I can tell you vividly all, all of those memories. They're ingrained into me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you're in Portland. Now what? You said you're finishing high school or high school. What happened after that, Andy? Yeah. So finishing high school, uh, I, I didn't have uh, a whole lot of drive. <laughs> uh, I was one of those, you know, I don't know how deep you want to get into, you know, these sorts of existential, you know, questions and crises that we go through. But when I was in high school, I are you suggesting you were lazy and you don't want to talk about it? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think sometimes we'll see something as being laziness, uh, but then in actuality, it, it might not be. So for me, I remember kind of you know going through this existential crisis that began actually when I was 12, when I was concerned that the world was meaningless, that it had no purpose. And for me, when that that all began actually when I was 12 because I started thinking about the fact that I'd die one day, which starts to get you to think about you know the bigger questions of life. And and the you know amusingly as it is, uh, it was my weightlifting coach that I would go to and ask questions about life's purpose uh, because he was such a driven guy, you mm. know, and he could bench 400 pounds. So I figured, man, if anybody's got life figured out, it's got to be my weightlifting coach. 400 pounds. <laughs> the guy was a gorilla a of a man. Yeah, oh, he yeah. was just huge. Uh, and, you know, again, just so driven. And so I'd ask him, you know, you know, why, you know, where, where do you find, you know, the purpose, you know, in, in all of this, because in some ways it's kind of meaningless, you know, when you're just lifting weight every day and you're just pushing it up and down. You know, it reminds me of uh, of the myth of Sisyphus, right? So, you know, this Greek legend of rolling a rock up a hill, and you're kind of thinking, you know, what's, what's the point in all this? And he really never had an answer for me. He just said, you know, go, go lift some more weight, Steiger. And, and I, I found that very dissatisfying and, and wanted to know, you know, if life did have purpose to it. And if it did, I wanted to know what it was. <clears throat> so when I was finishing high school uh, was when uh, my spiritual life uh, really began. And I started looking into the whole question about God's existence. And you'd think that I would have been more into that earlier because I saw the impact it was having on my mom, but uh, I wasn't. Well, one of the things I want the listeners to hear is, you know, obviously, you know, as a show, we honor where people are at and their journey, but we also have a belief system here is that your belief system matters, right? And that mm-hmm. every single person listening to the show has a belief system. And if you believe in nothing, that is something. And so part of one of the chapters in my book, which is where Andy helped out on the quest for purpose was meaning before purpose. You know, so how do we discover meaning? Where does that come from? What's going mm-hmm. on with that? So in high school, where did this motivation to kind of seek this out or seek some clarity? Was there somebody around you that helped you or did you just sort of progress on your own? Uh, sadly, I just had to progress on my own. I, I mean, I had so many philosophical, uh, scientific and theological questions, but <clears throat> I really didn't know. I didn't have anybody uh, really to answer those questions for me. So I think in some ways become uh, probably part of the direction of my own life is, is why I've gone into those areas and why I've tried to help other people is, is in that I wish I had had some help. And ultimately uh, where it came down to is I just decided, you know what, I just want to look into this whole question about life's meaning and purpose and whether or not it has any. And if it does, I want to know what it is. I want to know what impact it would make on my life. And, and ultimately, that, that was a life-changing moment for me. And I went from a student, you know, who didn't care and barely graduated from high school to now somebody who's completing a PhD. Uh, I found a love for life that I, I didn't know uh, previously. Well, you also found your wife somewhere in the mix of this, and she's like, adds to your life. Like, we know that yeah. you married up, like, big time. <laughs> 
I, I absolutely did. Uh, I uh, moved to Canada and met my wife, Nancy, uh, when I was uh, going to university. And, uh, you know, she actually graduated valedictorian from, uh, from our college. And uh, she's, she's incredibly bright. And uh, her and I uh, work uh, really well together. And, and we do something, you know, that not a lot of people do uh, or couples. You know, Nancy and I work every day together. Which is, uh, which is unusual now that I, I think more about it. <laughs> well, there's not many couples who kind of manage working together with each other. We'll get into the fact that you've been using some of the CRG PSI here in a few minutes. But before that, I know a little bit of your story. Uh, so you finished uh, university. Now, was that degree in uh, theology or what was it in? It was. So for me... Uh, I began to realize how important the uh, idea of God is to whether or not life has meaning and purpose. And so when I went off to university, uh, I wanted to understand this idea of theology better, particularly Christian theology. So I completed a BA in biblical studies. Mm. Now, part of after you, you know, met your wife and uh, that completed you in many ways, you two did a lot of studies really, uh, or not studies, but travels around the world, just really engaging with a lot of different religions around the world, just to kind of bring some clarity and have an understanding of what is everybody teaching out there. Uh, tell us a little bit about that journey as you traveled around the world, just investigating. Yeah, so I have uh, an absolute love for travel, for culture, for people. And uh, I still do to this day that I'm working hard to instill into my children. So, yeah, my wife and I uh, have, first of all, we did a lot of traveling before we even got married. Uh, I had traveled to uh, Nepal, uh, to, the, to Mount Everest. I had traveled to the Andes Mountains and, and various places like that. And it was actually on one of those trips that I was sharing a taxi with uh, another traveler to the airport and they told me about how she had told me how she had just finished traveling the world for a year. And now that, that kind of was the seed of an idea that, uh, that I told my, you know, then fiance, Nancy, that when we got married, I said, we need to, uh, um, we need to travel the world for a year. And she kind of waved it off like, yeah, yeah. You know, kind of pie in the sky sort of thing. But Two years into our marriage, uh, we quit our jobs and for um, 12 months um, traveled the world. And since then, I mean, we've, we've traveled to around 40 countries, I'd say. But uh, that, that was kind of, uh, that was an important part of understanding uh, our world, understanding that there are a multiplicity of worldviews uh, around the world, but yet there's this common need and desire for purpose, for meaning, uh, for community, uh, for, um, you know, uh, the, the richness that comes from relationship. Mm. Now, when you, just before you got married and you went to Nepal, there's all kinds of places around the world you could have gone. Why Nepal? Yeah, that's a, that's a, um, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess there's two reasons. I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever shared this with anybody. So here goes. Uh, the first thing is, is I found out it was cheap. Okay. So, so that was, that was important. Uh, I, I heard that you can travel for a couple dollars uh, a day in Nepal when you're hiking through the Himalayas. And I, I found out that that, that was in fact the case back then. I don't know if it's still the case. Anyway, but more than that, you know, not growing up with a dad uh, was difficult. And so, you know, normally, you know, you have a dad who would say, take you fishing or take you hiking and take you do all those sorts of things. And I never had that. And I, I remember a buddy of mine, though, was in Boy Scouts and he and I would talk. And one day he was talking with me about how, you know, there were, you know, mountains in the world that were so much bigger than ours, you know, in the Cascades. And he was talking about Mount Everest and how you can actually hike to Mount Everest and, and do all these sorts of things. And, and I grew up very, very poor. My, my family and I never went on any sort of, you know, 
like vacations. Like we would have never have gone to, you know, Hawaii or to, or to Disneyland or anything like that. Like, mm. and, and, and in my view, the world was very small uh, and I, and I kind of saw a very, you know, limited perspective of what I was going to do with my life uh, because I just kind of had that very um, simplistic, poor uh, idea. And, and so when I, uh, that, that was, so going to Nepal for me was very much starting to see that the world wasn't as big as I thought it was or as impossible as I thought it was and that if I worked hard, that I could save up my money and I could do these amazing things that I, I literally thought was impossible before. I thought was only for the wealthy, the, the elite in the world. Mm. Does that make sense? It, it makes, well, it's your answer, so it has to make sense. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Who am I to argue with your head? And so, and uh, I appreciate that. Now, the other one is, is when you went the first time, so you're starting to get outside of your shell, what do you think impacted you the most about that trip that you would share with the audience that was transformational or insightful or just inspiring? Well, uh, I guess two things. One would be that uh, I was supposed to go to Nepal with a good friend of mine. Uh, he was going to go with me and he and I were going to hike to Mount Everest together, but just Two weeks before we were to leave, uh, he canceled the whole thing because his girlfriend told him that if he went, she'd break up with him. And uh, and here I was left to go, okay, well, what do I do? And so I decided that I wasn't going to let that stop me. And so I decided I'm going to Nepal on my own then, and I'm going to hike for three weeks alone to Mount Everest. And uh, and so that that's what I did. And ironically, as soon as I landed in Kathmandu, I got an email from from him that his girlfriend broke up with him anyways. And, uh, and here I was. <laughs> I think you saw that coming. Yeah, I did. Right. I mean, I, anybody who's listening to this probably like, Oh, you should have, you know, should have broke up with that girl. But yeah, like no surprise. Uh, the thing though, that my, you know, so one thing that I, that taught me was, um, you know, sometimes you just need to move forward in, in this world with or without, you know, people coming along with you. Uh, you know, sometimes you need to drive forward. But, but ironically, there's another aspect to this that I learned on that trip. And that was, you know, I, I cried on that trip. Uh, there, there were some incredibly lonely nights out in the middle of the Himalayas, you know, uh, with no one to talk to. And I'm writing in my journal and just feeling incredibly lonely and isolated. And, and it was an amazing reminder to me of how important and fundamental community and relationships are uh, to what we do. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't ever want to go on an adventure alone. Like I, I would have done it again. Don't get me wrong. I would have gone back and I would have hiked that all again on my own. Uh, but I, but it was in doing so though that I learned that uh, I wanted to do it in community. Um, so there, you kind of have this, duality happening there where, you know, you, you've got to press forward. You can't rely on other people all the time. I mean, people are going to let you down, but at, at the same time is this understanding that you in fact need other people and you can't do it alone. And so these two things are intention. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting because you work with young people now as one of your responsibilities and the latest research for individuals let's say under 30 and the teenagers is they've never been more lonely and mm -hmm. so we we say we're social and social media but really it's been the disaster of live in-person community uh, it, it really has i mean if you read any of the research out right now uh loneliness is an epidemic it's so bad that in the uk they've actually um created a, a minister of loneliness like that that's what his role is to address are you kidding so, no so the government no. has actually created a agency a group saying the minister of loneliness yes and that and that's their sole focus and research has also been demonstrated that loneliness is absolutely detrimental to your health it's the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day uh, if if I have that correct, seven cigarettes or something like that a day, it, it's 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 terrible for you. 
Uh, it's one, in fact, it's one of the, the worst things uh, for you right now if you're like list off, you know, what are bad things for a human being. Uh, loneliness would be at the top. And, and so one of the things that we're starting to understand about ourselves and we need to understand about ourselves is that we are inherently relational beings, that, that we require community. And when you begin to realize that, you start to understand that that goes both ways. That means that I need relationship, but it also means that there are other people in my life that, that need me. So I need them, and they need me, and, and, and we depend on each other. And, and honestly, Ken, I think this is one of those aspects uh, that people in the business world really need to understand because, I mean, sometimes we can become so driven that, that in many ways we start to lose ourselves. And that's what a lot of, as you know, a lot of my PhD work has been on is in the area of dehumanization. And, and it's, a fun, it's this, this idea that we can actually dehumanize ourselves when we start to lose sight of our need for community and, and in fact, the detriment that it can be to somebody else when we lose sight of their need for us. Well, if you think about, uh, and thank you, Andy, for that, you think about individuals or some teaching is, oh, if I need people, then it's a sign of weakness. But the reality is that community grows our spirit. Now, you might or might not be aware of this, but Harvard did the longest study for longevity. It was 50 years. It just came out a few months ago, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. One of the number one factors to longevity was loving relationships is one of the top five the number two factor in there outside of, you know, not smoking itself was generosity, the ability to give what you were doing with your mom to the individuals there. So mm. that is confirmed even in my lifeline that those two components are important. And that's what you've verified and verifying in your work. Yeah. Uh, that, which that's absolutely fascinating. So you, I'm going to have to uh, go check out that, that work because that, is right along with all the findings um, that I have seen and the studies that I've been uh, researching, but then in my own work that, that I've been doing. Uh, so it's kind of one of those things where it's, there's no surprise there, but yet we continue to be surprised by it. Mm. Uh, that, that this idea that relationships are so uh, crucial to, to who we are. Uh, and, and I think that one of the aspects that, I, I think really challenges us in this is we can become so individualistic that we kind of approach this whole thing from, okay, well, what's going to bring me happiness? Uh, but community forces you to look outside of your individualism and start to see uh, that your happiness is actually going to be dependent on somebody else's that, that you actually need to care for one another, which which means you're going to need to start to see things differently uh, and start to, you know, break outside of this very individualistic mentality and start to start to see the, the communal aspect, which, you know, I know that uh, a lot of the listeners to this podcast would be in the business uh, world. Uh, and everything I'm seeing, though, in business research is just showing how incredibly uh, effective that is in the business world when you're creating a, a dynamic team that learns to work together. Well, and of course, uh, all, there's more research, not only personal purpose, but business purpose, all the work that Jim Cousa said about, you know, if your business organization, profit or nonprofit, doesn't have a vision, that's one of the five characteristics of building a credible and engaged workforce. If you don't know where you're going, who you are, in that sense of, as you said, community that comes out of that. Now, this is kind of a inserting a little thought here because I really want to work on uh, cover your work. And I think it's fascinating for the, for the listeners. I can't tell you listener, if this is something that's interest to you, but Andy has some amazing stories about how, you know, how is it that the humankind <laughs> has dehumanized and created all this genocide around the world? And you have this short f uh, film that is a now winning some awards. But before I get into that, one of the things, of course, that you've been using now for some time is the CRG Personal Style Indicator. So that's mm -hmm. our personality assessment that would be an alternative to DISC or Myers-Briggs and some of these other ones in True Colors that are out there. 
and we're now been doing that with your young adults for is it four or five years maybe? Oh yeah, yeah, probably at least that long. When you think about purpose in life, how has this tool in clarifying sort of your natural preferences and strengths been helpful as you counsel kids and also yourself in your own company and your own group with Apologetics Canada? Uh, you know, it's interesting when uh, when it comes when you know you and I met uh, because I I purchased your book and read it and uh, fell in love with fell in love with it uh, the book uh, Why Aren't You More Like Me and when I it was funny because then I was speaking um, at an event and you happened to be in the audience. And uh, and I, I forget the the series of events there, but I eventually got you to sign my book, which I was pretty pretty uh, stoked about. And the the thing with the work you've been doing with the personality style indicator has been of huge interest to me uh, for a number of years. It continues to be. I am completely unashamed uh, to promote that work because I think it is absolutely fantastic. And what I what I love about the PSI personality style indicator is that it is the relational component of it. So on the one hand, that tool is a simple but effective and very accurate tool to understand yourself better. And when you understand yourself better, you understand in what areas you're going to thrive in and in those areas that you're not going to thrive in, and you can start playing to your strengths, which I think is absolutely critical because I, uh, I know even in my own life I've had a lot of misunderstandings uh, about trying, you know, trying to, um, trying to, you know, build up your weaknesses or whatever it might be and, and, you know, being frustrated and not just not understanding yourself very well, Mm -hmm. well, where this tool, uh, uh, really helps to explain things. Now, the other relational component to this is for me. So for me, from a managed, from a managerial perspective, you know, and, and building with a, you know, a nonprofit is when you're hiring people, uh, my, my gut reaction when I first started to do this was, well, you hire people that you want to work with. And so if I had friends uh, or family or anything like that, you know, those would be kind of the first people that I'd go to to hire. And, and again, it's very in, that's very individualism, uh, very individualistic, like, because I'm thinking about me, what's, what's going to work best for me because I want to make sure I'm working with somebody that I like. So that that's going to be the best you know possible thing, but I'm not thinking to myself, what about them? Like, is this a good job for them? Are they going to excel here? Are they going to flourish? Are they going to enjoy, you know, this job? And, and one of the things I love about the PSI is that communal aspect. So you're seeking to understand yourself, but now every person that works with me, even my volunteers, we have them do this style indicators so that I know them so that I make sure that I'm making sure that I'm putting them into a role that is is going to play to their strengths and that they're going to be fulfilled in and and you can see how this becomes beneficial all around because if somebody and I know I'm preaching to the choir here but mm-hmm. if, if I'm putting somebody into a position that they're going to play to their strengths and there is going to you know accord with their with with what they're gifted at then they're going to stay in that role, and they're going to excel in that role. Uh, and so you, you're not just you know, doing yourself a favor, you're doing them a favor. So this, this is more than just about you. Uh, this, is about, this is about them and how you can work better together. Mm. Well, of course, you know, uh, I don't think anybody should be on the planet without it. It's so foundational, and then it's so relational because it, it goes cross everywhere. You know, if it's yeah. work, if it's self for my own intentional decisions, not from a self-centered point of view, but it's self-honoring. Because the other side, Andy, that comes into this, if we link this back to loneliness or we link this back to people who are not fulfilled in life, a lot of times they're going down pathways that society or parents or others have sort of forced them. Andy, you should be this. Mm-hmm. And really, it's not a fit for me. And so I have this guilt or this lack of engagement and then I get down and then I get lonely and then I get removed. And so, I mean, 80% of the world is in this non-engaged deal. And so no wonder they're feeling down is that they're not even playing to their strengths and they're feeling guilty about not being engaged and has nothing to do with them. And I really appreciated what you said there, Andy, is that we don't 
hire people for me. We hire for the role and for them. And if it's not a fit, we're doing a disservice to them and they're not going to be engaged in long term. It's not going to fit either, uh, though there is some flexibility that we have. So if we think about, I mean, your goal is really for people to feel fulfilled in life and to have meaning. This is a piece, and I thank you for your support on that over the years. And uh, by the way, thank you for your book to me, too, on thinking. <laughs> I was <laughs> honored. I, I actually think you're, um, I'm, um, you're higher than me, but let's just say that we're equal for now. <laughs> uh, hey, if I, mean, I could... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. If I could throw one thing in there that I think needs to be talked about is... I, you know, I think the PSI is so good that in some ways it can be too good. And let me, let me kind of highlight this because this is something I think people need to think about. And that is, you know, when I first uh, started working, a lot of people told me, you know, Andy, you need to be careful about burnout because, you know, it, it's so easy to burn out. And what, what you realize with the PSI is that, you know, people, and you could speak to this more than me, uh, but people tend to burn out because they're, they're, they're doing something that's not in, a, in accord with their style. But so what happens then is once you start playing to your strengths and you start, you know, doing things that are in accord with your style, you're, you're not only successful in it, you're energized by it. So you tend to want to put a lot of time, effort and energy in it because it's not going to burn you out. But this can become problematic. And, you know, because you, you see this with people who become workaholics, with people who uh, start to, you know, they get so invested into this business or whatever it is that it's, that they can fall into that back into that loneliness from a different perspective. Now that you know they understand themselves better, you know they can they can uh, start to neglect those other relationships. And so these things are constantly needing to be held in tension then as I'm starting to understand myself better. I need to keep that intention with the, the, um, the relational needs that I have with friends, family, and, and those, in those ways as well, that I'm staying healthy. And, and if I were just to be honest and just take a moment to, to um, challenge the listeners, uh, I think that there's a lot of people in business uh, that can easily lose sight of the importance of family, of community, of relationships, of friendship, and and need to take a moment to realize that money's not everything. Mm. And um, wealth's important to live, though a lot of times what happens, and thank you for that, Andy, is, you know, as a coach, I get into the minds and I have confidentiality, but the theme is, a lot of times people work really, really hard for their family, but then they lose them on the way. Mm -hmm. And so their, their motives are not, I mean, they, they're sincere and they're authentic, but they lose track of that. So I, I remember one individual who was like 150 pounds overweight, had worked seven days a week for three years. And I said, like, for what? I mean, your boy doesn't know you. You're not hanging out. Yes, you're only, you know, a few hours on the weekend, but even so you, you, uh, you're going to die. If you keep this up, your heart's not even going to be able to handle sort of what's going on there. So we got them onto a track to say, Hey, I need to consider all those things. One of the things we say, Andy, is sometimes our greatest strength can become our greatest weakness. So yeah. if we only play to that, I need to kind of manage that and work with that. So thank you for that. So let's transition out of the PSI. And when we think about, and those of you that are listening, and, I, and Andy and I have no idea where you're at sort of from a, a mindset point of view, but Andy, you really went on this course and I've included in my book and with your permission, and that was, you know, the five big questions was, you know, what is the meaning of life? Does God exist? Do all religions lead to God? Why is there evil? And is there life after death? And you really discovered that by going to coffee shops and asking individuals. And interesting enough, the majority of the world believe that there's more going on. It's not just innocuous, innocuous, it's not just kind of happenstance, but they're not necessarily clear about it. But your yeah. new work around your film, which is this award-winning best short film, really around, you know, the human project. Yeah. And one of the things, and of course, I've been to some of Andy's um, presentations, and by the way, if you ever get in front of him, he is one of the most gifted speakers in this topic that I've ever listened to. But 
one of the things you were talking about is how does how do we dehumanize each other? So you have genocide like Rwanda, where you have half a million people chopped to death by another another tribe, and because you you're you're not human. Where where did we where did we get this? Like how do, how is it that humans can be so uh, detrimental to each other, and and that's not the right word, but just so horrific towards each other if we have this other human being across the way, how do we get there? And how does this apply to me, the listener right now? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for the, the, the kudos and the kind words. I appreciate that, Ken. The feelings are, are mutual. When, uh, when it comes to our humanity, I, I, as you know, I've been working on something called the human project. And part of that has been a series of videos. Uh, and a lot of this has been coming from my PhD work and basically, it's been flowing from the idea that we need to be careful as a culture, the, the ideas that we embrace, because we've seen in our past what happens when we get certain questions wrong. And in particular, one of the foundational questions that when we get wrong leads hor- to horrible things is our humanity. When, when we answer that incorrectly, it has led to things like slavery, genocide, and a whole host of other terrible things. And, and it's been interesting for me as I've researched this because uh, I was stunned by what I found. And, and what, what I found was, was simply this, and I'm going to say it and encourage listeners to think about it, but I'll unpack this. And that is that people, um, people don't murder people. And when I looked at this historically, uh, I've, never, I've never seen people murdering people. I've never seen people enslaving people. Uh, you, you never see examples of that. And the reason is, is because intuitively we understand that human beings have dignity. And, but what, what we do instead is if I can take away your humanity, if I can you know, see you as something other than human, something less than human. By the way, there's a great book by David Livingstone uh, that, that's called, uh, David, David Livingstone Smith, that's called Less Than Human. But if I can make you into something less than human, then I can, I can treat you in any uh, way that I like. You know, and, and basically what we see is that dehumanization is to either reduce a person to an animal or an object. And so if, when you, you know, look back in history, for example, People didn't enslave people. They first, you know, turned them into something less than human. And then, you know, and we see this all the way back with Aristotle. And then it's very easy to enslave uh, an animal, right? We wouldn't even think of it in that, that regard. The same thing with genocide, every genocide that we've ever seen. It's not, you know, if you could go back in time, let me put it in this way. If you could go back in time and, and talk with a Nazi, for example, that participated in the genocide of the Jews and ask them this question, you know, don't you think it's wrong to murder people? Their answer to you would be, well, of course it's wrong to murder, murder people. Uh, and then they just would have kindly explained to you why the Jews aren't people. And, and what you begin to realize is that you've got a worldview problem. And I mean, this really messed with people uh, after World War II when psychological studies started being done on this and how these sorts of things were be, are possible because during the Nuremberg trials and the Tokyo trials, everyone was amazed to see that these were normal people. These weren't monsters. You know, this, this is a normal, you know, good, you know, nice husband, father, you know, that, that you know, gassed millions of, of Jews. And you start to realize how important, now again, I'm not trying to say that, by the way, to say that what they, you know, that gets them off the hook for what they did. They, they chose to view those people that way. But it demonstrates how they're capable of those horrendous deeds. It's also then challenging for us to make sure that we are seeing each other correctly um, because, and, and if I could just give it, you know, one more illustration here, and I think this has a lot mm-hmm. of business application, by the way. But you know, one example of this is you take, for example, Nazi Germany, and you look at how propaganda was used at that time. You know, he's used in posters and, and uh, you know, in written literature. It was one of the main ways that the Jews were dehumanized. But then you take, say, for example, the Rwanda genocide, in which 
the radio was one of the main catalysts for the Hutu to dehumanize the Tutsis. Nowadays, though, we've got our own similar thing happening, though, through social media, through, through the Internet. Um, it was just declared recently that the genocide that's been taking place with the Rohingya people in Myanmar was fundamentally driven by Facebook. And, and th- these are, you know, I, th- I don't think this actually would be too surprising for people if you just spend a little bit of time reading some YouTube comments or go on a couple, you know, Reddit, uh, um, so, you know, look at some Screen. of those Reddit threads. Yeah, you're not going to be surprised to hear that. I mean, because we, we get really accustomed to just how dehumanized people are on, um, on the Internet, right? Because in, in that situation, if I don't have to see you, if all I'm doing is typing, I'm just, you know, sending 180 words of whatever I want. I mean, it's very easy to say whatever you want. But when, I have, when I'm seeing a person, when I see their humanity, I'm not just looking at a computer screen. I mean, well, that changes the tone, the timber of how I'm interacting with that individual. And so uh, I think that, so that, that, that starts to get into, Ken, uh, some of the research that I've been doing and some of uh, what we need to be cautious about with what's going on right now in the area of, of technology and to make sure that we're using it in appropriate ways. So Andy, when we think about how this applies to my life, just generally... Okay, just open. What's your recommendation and what are you discovering for me, the listener right now? You know, we, we only have a few minutes left in the show. What are some steps and things I need to consider and, and or do to not get down this rabbit hole or this path of destruction? Yeah, that's a great question that I think a lot of us need to be thinking about individually uh, for those that own businesses, thinking about this from a business perspective, you know, because there's a lot of people that want to get into the, say, social justice movements. And that's a big thing right now in business as well. Like, you know, our Mm -hmm. business, you know, gives this amount of money to this nonprofit or whatever that might be, or we're interested in fair trade or all these other things. but the, the reality is, is I've talked with people on the streets and university campuses and, and whatnot, is there's a lot of people that are all for social justice, but they don't know why they're for social justice. And, and they don't understand, uh, you know, kind of that foundation to, to the social justice movement, particularly uh, when we think about things like uh, the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, you know, that all humans... Uh, have inherent dignity, um, uh, that they have equality and inalienable rights. You know, one of the things that I think that we need to really reckon with individually is, is what, what do I think about a human being? Do I think that humans have inherent dignity? Do I think they have equality and, and rights that can't be taken away? And if I do, uh, why do I believe that? And, and, and I guess what I'm trying to get out here, Ken, is I think that there's a lot of foundation work that needs to be done uh, in our lives where we start to, to ask that sort of a, a foundational question. But then when we start to move beyond that uh, is starting to ask those, those personal challenging questions. And that is, am I, am I seeing myself correctly? Do, do I see me as somebody who has value you know, that has dignity, that, that, you know, do I see myself as being, um, as having equality? Because there's a lot of people that they don't even have a view of themselves correctly. And listen, if you don't have a view of yourself correctly, you're not going to have a view of other people correctly. Mm. And and so uh, the the work that I've been doing then is to really then challenge those areas in our lives our lives where we're not seeing ourselves, we're not seeing other people correctly. We're not, we don't have that high standard of what it means to be a human being. Now, the work that I've been doing argues though, that the foundation that that's going to be built on is, is your view of God, that that's, that's going to be the most important view that you have. In fact, and that's going to be the view that's going to inform everything else. And so that's, that, that would be the encouragement uh, that I would have. Um, and as well, if they want to know more about those ideas, uh, they can check out The Human Project. Of course, now, 
and thank you for that, Andy. Is so, how can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, what are some of the sites they can go to? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, one thing is, is I have a, a new book that's coming out. It's being published by Zondervan, and it's called Erasing Ourselves. That's the soft title. I, I think that's going to be the title we'll see at the end. Uh, so that's one thing that they can be looking out for. Uh, they can go to thehumanproject.com uh, or .ca, or actually thehumanproject.ca, uh, and they can find um, more more info of the work that I've been doing, not just for adults, but for children as well. The Human Project for Kids uh, .ca is out there. And then uh, they can find out more about me uh, on Facebook or Instagram or through our website uh, at Apologetics. Well, spell your, spell your name, Andy, and how you're posted on online. Yeah, so I have a website called andysteiger.com. So that's A-N-D-Y, and then Steiger is spelled S-T-E-I-G-E-R. Okay, and then your book, you can they can find out more about your first book, which I think is fascinating as well. You know, Thinking, Answering Life's Five Biggest Questions. Questions. Yeah, so and if we're going to overcome Amazon. loneliness, if we're going to realize our potential, if we're going to live on purpose, if we're going to even discover the answer to this question around meaning, then my encouragement is, is that you would look at Andy's work there. Well, Andy... Dr. Andy, I think it should be like now. You say you're a candidate, but no, no. It's Dr. Andy. Thanks for hanging out with us today. It has been a pleasure to be with you. I really, really appreciate it, Ken. Uh, You're welcome. Stay with us, Andy. So listeners, SOS listeners, today's really been philosophical, really going deeper. Of course, we were talking about the PSI and importance there, but really there are questions that are even deeper than that. You know, why are you here? You know, what is the meaning of life? And why do I, why do we have somebody like Andy on SOS? Because it is foundational. A lot of people don't want to go there. They don't want to talk about it. And unfortunately, that is what's led to this epidemic of loneliness and individuals who are struggling, the highest level depression in the history of mankind. It's not okay with all the stuff that's going on. And so Andy's work and what he's doing is helping us that you are valuable, you are important. Every single person listening to this, you have a pers- a per- uh, you have a purpose, you have meaning, you are important. As always, we thank you for listening. If you uh, have the time, please share, pass it on, or let others know about Secrets of Success, or leave a positive review in whatever platform you are listening on. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.